Thank you for tuning in to today's audio message. Here at Temple Baptist Church, we are a church on a mission, connecting people to Jesus and to one another. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to thank the uh, worship band this morning for leading us. It's so good. Thank you, Laura, and everybody else back there for lifting us up in your worship to God. So um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is James. I'm one of the pastors here at Temple, and uh, I want to tell you a little story about the sermon I just preached at the last service. After I was done, I was standing over there where Pastor Stan, when they're done, and a woman walked up to me, and she said to me, you know, you told me you weren't a preacher. And I said, I'm not. She said, I know. She said, you're a teacher, and I'm just preparing you in advance. The truth is, I'm much more a teacher than a preacher, and you'll see the difference this morning. My background's always been in education. I was a lab instructor. I was a teacher. I went to education school. I, was, um, uh, I worked as a principal. So you're going to see the difference between preaching and teaching. I'm just warning you in advance, okay? But I'm the executive pastor here, and this morning we're going to learn a little more about God a little more about God, the Trinity, and I want to talk specifically about why Jesus came to be known as the Son of God. So, let me pray to begin. Father, it's, it's so good to be together, and we're going to open our hearts and our minds up to you this morning to learn more about you. And as we learn more about you and your Son, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will really impress upon us things that we can learn from, things that we can know, and things that will help us to better worship you. And we pray all this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. So when I say the word God to you, what comes into your mind? What comes into your mind when you hear the word God? Does an image appear? Or for some of you, do you associate God with some some quality of God, his love or his judgment or his strength? Or maybe when you hear God, you think of a religious symbol, a church or a cross or some other kind of religious symbol. Uh, last year, there was a group of kids that were given access to an artist, and the job of the kids was to explain to the artist what God looked like. So the artist would take up his colored pencils and draw whatever the kids asked them to draw. So the first kid, a girl, said that she thought God looked like an old man on the clouds. And she said she knew that because she heard about it on, or saw it on The Simpsons. She said, that's what I think God looks like. And then the second boy said, no, I think God looks like a giant frog with a lion's head. So the artist would try to draw that for the boy, and he would correct him when he went wrong and add detail here and there. Then the third boy came along and said, no, I think God actually is a two-headed person who hangs out with his mother, whose name is Jesus, And Jesus is a hexagon who fights demons from Mars. (laughs) It's all over the map. It's crazy. But you know, if we just left our own imaginations, we can come up with all kinds of ideas for what God might look like. Now, if you believe in God or a divine presence, you're not alone in this world. The last stats I was able to find in the, I think it's the Oxford Handbook on Atheism, says that about 93% of the world's adult population believes in a divine presence, in God or gods. And um, the author and writer A.W. Tozer once said 
that what comes into our mind when we think of God is the most important thing about us. It's worth, that's worth thinking about. What comes into our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. What we think about God affects everything we do. What we think about, about God affects the way we feel. It affects the way we treat other people. One of the things that sets Christianity apart from the other major world religions is that Christianity has a belief in God that is triune. It believes in a trinity. Now, I expect most of you have heard trinity before. If you've heard God being expressed as trinity, just put your hand up for a minute so I kind of know who I'm talking. Yeah, almost everybody has heard the word trinity before. Um, when we say we worship the Trinity, that means every Sunday when we get together here, we are committed to serving and to learning about and to worshiping God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what the Trinity is. In some ways, understanding the Trinity, I'll tell you in advance, is extremely challenging because it takes, it just hurts the brain to think too much about it. I've asked people sometimes, what, what do they think the Trinity is? And you get that blank stare, that deer in the headlights kind of look, because there's just, well, for some people, where do you begin? And for other people, there's the odd person who just loves talking about it, day after day after day, but they're the exception rather than the rule. My sense is the better we understand God, the better we are able to worship God. And I hope you believe the same thing. As you learn more about God, you can worship God even better. Now, in simple terms, the Trinity is the belief that God is one being, who exists in three persons. One being who exists in three persons. The word Trinity is never, ever used in the Bible. Maybe you knew that. There are verses in the Bible where all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned. For example, in Matthew 28, 19, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, Jesus speaking, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But the word Trinity, you'll never find it in the scriptures. Now, if you're like me, when you hear there are three persons in one being, it's confusing. Because, I mean, look at, let's look at it this way. I'm one person and one being. I'm one being, I'm a human being. You're a human being, we're all human beings. I only have one person. What does it mean for a being to have three persons inside one being? Like that's very, very hard for us to understand. And I'm going to suggest that one of the reasons it's hard to understand is it is, almost, it is beyond our comprehension to be able to define God like anything else around us. I'll talk about that in the last part of the sermon. But um, there was a guy named Nabil Qureshi who died. He was only 34 years old. He was an up-and-coming um, young uh, Christian. He served uh, in Ravi Zacharias Ministries, if any of you know Ravi Zacharias. And Nabil was um, somebody who had converted from um, Islam to Christianity. And when he was asked to explain the Trinity, he said, there is no example, there is no metaphor, there's no picture that you can find. God is other. There's, some, there's nothing that can explain perfectly what it means to be one being with three persons. Now, that hasn't stopped people from trying. Some people say, well, God is like an egg. Shell, white, yolk, three in one doesn't really work, but okay. So somebody said, well, God is like water. You have gas, like water vapor that comes out of your kettle when it's boiling. You have liquid water, the kind you drink from your tap, and you skate on solid water. 
three different things, all the same thing. Nice try, right? It's a good try. Uh, St. Patrick, history says, used the shamrock to try to explain the Trinity. Three uh, leaves on the shamrock leaf. But the, the, the problem is that none of these, and we could get into why, but none of these perfectly captures the essence of what it means to be one being with three persons. So, I, what I don't want you to think about is, when you think of God, don't, do not think of three people sitting on clouds in the sky. Because that's not a picture of the, of the Christian God. Three different people sitting on clouds. Or, or don't think of God as a recipe, one-third Jesus, one-third Father, one-third Spirit. That, that's not a picture of what the Christian God is like. God is composed somehow mysteriously of one being with three persons. Now, this is me, but one of the things I've been really interested in knowing is how Christianity came to believe in God as triune if it came from such really strict monotheistic roots. Christianity arose out of Judaism, out of the Jewish faith. And in, in Christianity, um, they've insisted God has been revealed as three persons in one being. But the Jewish faith was always jealously monotheistic, strictly monotheistic, fiercely monotheistic. Throughout their history, they believed only in one God. And I'll give you an example from the Shema, or Shema. Uh, it's a passage in the Old Testament from the book of Deuteronomy. This is what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, practicing Jews at the time of Jesus, they would have recited the Shema. Once when they got up and once when they went to bed. And Jesus was a faithful practicing Jew. So he knew the Shema. In fact, he quotes this particular verse in the Gospel of Mark. A scribe comes up to Jesus in the Gospel of Mark and asks Jesus, Jesus, what is the most important commandment of all? And Jesus answers by saying, the Shema. The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So clearly Jesus was pinning that on his deeply monotheistic roots. The early followers of Jesus, like the Apostle Paul, also explicitly state that they believe in one God. Uh, for example, Paul in the letter to the Ephesians says, there's one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One God and Father. And, and from its early, earliest years of Christianity till now, Christians still claim to be monotheistic. They insist there's only one God. What's changed is they insist that God has been revealed as three persons. This morning I'm going to focus on two of my favorite passages to talk about an example of how that came to be. Okay? The first passage comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 45. So if you have your Bibles here, Turn to Isaiah chapter 45. It's one of the largest books in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament, written by the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus. It's a big, rich, beautiful book. Isaiah chapter 45. And I'm going to read verses 20 to 23. And as I read those verses, I want you to just think of how um, clear it is that Jews believed in one God. Strictly in, a, in one God. Starting in verse 20. They have no knowledge, God speaking. They have no knowledge who carry about. 
their wooden idols and keep praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them, that's those with false idols, take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. And I want you to hold this phrase, this last one in your mind. To me, God speaking, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Now, just hold that passage from Isaiah 45 in your mind. Put a finger in your Bible. Because we're going to fast forward to a time that's about 15 years after Jesus was crucified and rose we're going to go forward to the book of Philippians. So if you could flip forward in the New Testament to the book of Philippians, starting right at the beginning of that chapter, what's happening here is the Apostle Paul is writing a Roman colony in Philippi. That's why they call it the book to the Philippians. And Philippi was a colony that was set up for mostly Roman soldiers. But there was a small group of people within that colony that came to believe and trust Jesus. So Paul's writing them now, and he wants to say some things to them um, in Philippi. Here's what he says, starting at the beginning of chapter 2. First, he, he makes some comments to them about how to treat one another. If you have any encouragement of, in Christ, any comfort from my love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection or sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing, Paul says, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul says, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though Jesus was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in a human form, he humbled himself by become obe becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I want you to catch these next few verses. Therefore, what has God done? God has exalted Jesus and bestowed upon Jesus the name that is above all names, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, if you picked up an echo between Isaiah 45 and Philippians 2 that says on the one hand in Isaiah 45, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the God of Israel that he is Lord. And you've come along to Philippians 2 now and you've seen Paul say, God has given Jesus the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. That's not a coincidence. There's something very significant, something really revolutionary happening there. The prophet Isaiah in the passage, that passage is one of the probably high points of monotheism in the whole Old Testament. And the prophet Isaiah is going on to say that false gods amount to nothing. God is one, there are no other gods, period. That's what you could summarize 
Isaiah is saying in chapter 45. God is one. There are no other gods, period. Isaiah uses a very important name for God in this passage too. If you look, um, I'm going to put it up on the screen behind us. He uses this name for God 450 times in the book. 450 times. Because he's really fond of it. And the word in your English Bible is most likely translated Lord. It's in verse 21. Have a look for it. It's most likely translated Lord in all capital letters. That name, for those of you that maybe have not been exposed to that, that name is hugely significant in the Old Testament. That is the divine name. That is called in um, theology the Tetragrammaton. Four letters. It's the holiest name ever given to God. Some rabbis considered that word, that name, so holy that they would never write it or speak it out of reverence for God. Some others thought the name was so holy that the mention of that name, just using the name, should be punishable by death. I mean, this is how holy and sacred that name was. When those four letters showed up, 450 times in the book of Isaiah, that name was sacred. And what's happening here is that the divine name, which is mysterious and powerful and unspeakably holy, that name that is given to God in the book of Isaiah is going to be transferred to the book of Philippians, and it's going to be given to Jesus. So let's go on and see that. First, here it is in Isaiah. I'll read the passage. Uh, Turn to me and be saved, God says, uh, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Now when we go ahead to the book of Philippians, I'll just read the section again, and you listen for what's happening to the divine name in Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, here's what it says. Being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and below and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is not a mistake by the Apostle Paul. This is high Christology. This is Jesus' divinity Paul is talking about. What name did God bestow upon Jesus? What name is the name that is above every name? To what name should every knee bow? The name that is bestowed upon Jesus is a reference to the divine name, the unique sacred name of God. And it's now being reserved for not just God, but the Father, God, and the Son. So, at the, at the name of Jesus, every knee, we're told now, will bow and every tongue will confess. But like for, for me, I just find that incredible. I find that remarkable. Because we know when we're looking at this, we're not getting always the full impact of it. But if you were living in that culture and you were fiercely monotheistic and you felt that God should not share his glory with anyone, and then you were told that there was a guy named the Apostle Paul who was following a risen Messiah who had been crucified, and he's giving God's name to that crucified Messiah who's now risen from the grave, you would feel it more. We don't feel that the same way in Canadian culture. Paul is now going back into Isaiah and he's applying to Jesus. 
the one name that was reserved for God alone. So, um, for Paul and early Christians, while they were remaining staunch monotheists, they were saying something, has, something different's going on here. God has been revealed to us, not just as a father, but as a son. And we can go into it and have a whole other sermon on it, but also God has been revealed to us as Holy Spirit. The resurrected Jesus then shares what was reserved for God alone. And maybe the best way of thinking about it is Jesus became the complete embodiment of Israel's God. Now, that's not the only passage in the New Testament that talks about Jesus' divinity. I'll just give you a few more. Um, Thinking of the Gospel of John, one that probably you're very familiar with. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, Logos, the Word here refers to Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. From the Gospel of John again in chapter 10, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul writes, For in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In the uh, author of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God as He sustains everything by by the mighty power of His command. When He, Jesus, had cleansed us from our sins, He sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. This shows that that the Son is far greater than the angels, just as the name God gave, gave Him is greater than their names. And then finally, a passage from the last book of the Bible, Revelation 19, 16, on his robe and on Jesus' thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So, I mean, while this might kind of slip by us because we become very familiar with religious language, this is extremely revolutionary, significant stuff. I'll just give you one more example why it's significant. If you were a Roman sitting in Philippi and you were a retired soldier, like a bunch of the people in Philippi were, you would still have been willing to actively serve Caesar, who was the emperor. Now, at the time Paul writes in Philippi, there were two main titles given to Caesar. Those titles, I'll give you the Greek words first, Kyrios and Soter. Kyrios is Lord, and Soter is Savior. Caesar was to be called Lord and Savior. It was part of an imperial cult that many of the soldiers were in. They worshipped Caesar in addition to serving him. So Caesar was known to them as Lord and, Lord and Savior. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, Caesar was ascribed some divine quality. When Paul writes this letter to people in, Philipp- in Philippi, something incredibly significant happens. Paul's saying, you know, it's not Caesar that's Kyrios and Sotar. It's not Caesar who's Lord and Savior. I want you to know who's Lord and Savior. And in this passage, he tells us, Jesus is Lord and Savior. And he's come to be the embodiment of the God of Israel. So that's incredibly significant. That runs, I mean, you don't feel it today because you're not in an imperial cult. But just imagine that. Now, the Jews at the same time have already mentioned, very significant, that they felt their God was God alone and his glory would be shared with no one. So you have Paul in both his secular Roman context and in his religious context He's saying things about Jesus that are revolutionary. For me, I find 
It's the way I'm made. But I find this stuff lifts me up. I find it draws my mind up to heaven. It makes me think, wow, this is really amazing. How did this come together? Um, it's not, I know sometimes it's, it seems complex, and that's okay. But it makes me think, God, you're revealing to us something here that's really meant for us to understand you better. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, no subject will humble the mind more than thoughts of God. And for me, these two uh, passages just really lift me up in worship. I've had people come to my door and knock and want to introduce me to God, and this is, these have been the passages I'd talk to them about. I say, well, can we talk a bit about what I believe? And I'll say, you know, what I believe is that, well, let's look at Isaiah chapter 45, and I'll read it. Here in the New Testament, look, look at what Paul says about, about knees bowing and people swearing allegiance. It leads to a good conversation. It's respectful. It's interesting. But it draws me up in worship to God. My sense for the early Christians is they were still trying to understand how all this stuff was coming together. And church history seems to indicate that. They weren't expecting Jesus to come as a Messiah and die on the cross. That wasn't their picture of Messiah. They weren't expecting it. And they took them a while to come together with words that would express the God that had been revealed to them. But in the end... The God that was revealed to them is best understood as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Trinity is the best way of expressing the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. i just read you one quote here from New Testament scholar and author N.T. Wright. It's a bit long, but it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, quote that captures why it is that God's thoughts and ways are higher than ours. The doctrine of the Trinity N.T. Wright says, properly understood is as much a way of saying we don't know as it is a saying we do know. To say that the true God is three in one is to recognize that there is a, if there is a God, of course, we shouldn't expect him to fit neatly into our little categories. If he did, he wouldn't be God at all. He'd merely be a God, perhaps a God we invented that we wanted. The Trinity, Tom Wright says, is not something that the clever theologian comes up with as a result of ours spent in the theological laboratory, after which he can announce that he's got it all worked out, the analysis is complete, and God is neatly laid out on a slab. N.T. Wright finishes his quote by saying this, the only time they laid God out on a slab, he rose three days afterwards. In the end, God for us as a church is not an intellectual problem to be solved. God is a king to be worshipped. Who we think God is and who we think God, what we think God is like affects the way we worship God. This morning we began with three pictures from three kids of who they thought God was. And I'm really encouraged that we can go back to the pages of Scripture and we can look afresh each generation and understand who it is God is and how God's revealed himself to us. If you want to know what that God is like, the ones, I would argue, here among us today, the ones in the world that best understand the God of Scripture and understand the Trinity are not the philosophers, they're not the historians, they're not the theologians. The people who understand God best are the people who trust God and follow Him. Thanks for tuning in this morning. If God has used this ministry to bless you in any way, I encourage you to join us live Sunday mornings at 1030. 
For address, directions, and any more information, you can check us out online at templebaptist.com. God bless and have a great week. Shine like the sun.